Good morning, beloved. Good morning. You know, I, I have to, it's always, a, can you hear me? Yeah, can you hear me all right? All right. All right, this morning, I don't have any slides, because most all of the texts will be First and Second Timothy, so you can open your Bibles to First Timothy, actually open to Second Timothy, and we'll go back and forth to First and Second Timothy, and even a little bit from Titus. Uh, we're focused on the church. Um, this morning's focus is, uh, the, the title is Guardian of the Deposit, the church as Guardian of the Deposit. So let me pray and then we'll, uh, we'll look at what that means for us. Father, thank you for this Lord's Day morning. Thank you for this very comfortable place to meet. Thank you for these, your dear people. I'm showing up here to um, want to listen um, to your truth. May you bless them. And bless our gathering today as we bless the name Most High. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, according to the redemptive um, uh, permit, uh, promises and purposes of God um, th- throughout um, the scriptures, access to God has made uh, available to us, uh, obviously, by the way, the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, he's the head of his church. We are the body. He's the head. We're the body. We are the church. So our our worship as the body of Christ um, is the consequence of our experience of salvation. So there ought to be passion for that which Christ has passion for. He has passion for his bride. He has passion for his church. We too ought to love what Christ loves. Therefore, we ought to have passion for the church. We have passion for the church. We understand our purpose. And our purpose is to gather together and to worship the Father, Son, um, and Holy Spirit. So that teaches us, as we've learned in the last couple of weeks, there's nothing passive um, about our purpose. There's nothing passive about our gathering and nothing passive about our passion for that which Christ has passion. That's what we've been reminded of the last couple of weeks um, and last time we looked at uh, the fuel for that passion, the fuel that, that ignites the fire of passion for Christ's church. And we concluded that it's, it's bound up in her theology, the church's theology. And if God's word isn't central to what we do, then you remove, you remove the fuel um, for, that, for that fire. If the Bible isn't central to the meeting, of God's people, his church um, will become cold, um, it will become muzzled, um, or at the very least indifferent. There'll be no glow from the church of our Lord Jesus Christ if, if her fuel is put aside or neglected. Now we're reminded that uh, we were last week that the Bible everywhere um, teaches that it's, it's important for believers to understand their times, to understand um, the age in which they live. If you remember 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes, Timothy says, but understand this, 
That in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid, Paul says, such people. Now, the warning of danger for the first century church, Paul's saying, look, in the last days, those were the last days, and today also we live in the last days. The church age is the last days. So the warning to the church then, the warning to the church here in the 21st century is the encroachment to replace God's unchanging word and wisdom with with faulty, ever-shifting words and wisdom of man. That's the temptation. That was the temptation then, and it is no different today. And that leads to worldliness. And worldliness um, is when any particular culture stands to make sin seem normal and righteousness to appear as being very odd, very awkward. But that's the very thing that creeps into the church, a worldly view. And when the church stops adopting the views of the world, she, she stands in grave danger. So the result naturally, naturally will be that, that the church's purpose and in passion of purpose will be quenched. So if you remove her theology, she will adopt the words and wisdom of man. So we've looked at fuel that ignites the fire for passion and purpose. That's her theology. It's bound up in her theology. And if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul warns Timothy of that being potentially lost. Notice, he says, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Those latter times are here. Amen? They've been present since Christ's ascension and they will continue until his return. Make no mistake. So here's Timothy. He's pastoring the church in Ephesus, Ephesus, a church that Paul himself planted. And Paul intends to encourage Timothy, the young pastor, by, by informing him of the inevitability that some who profess Christ, they will apostatize. That which they profess now, they will turn away. They will turn their back. They will walk away. Okay, so among the members of that church, among those who profess to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, within that gathered assembly, there in Ephesus, Paul warns him that some will depart from the faith. So, in order to work against the teachings of demons, remember, we're going to learn this morning that Satan typically doesn't manifest himself in the possessed. He typically wants to manifest himself as an 
angel of light, typically within the circles of religion. Those are the teachings of demons. Anything that that detracts or pulls away from the gospel becomes another gospel. So Paul says, look, in order to work against that, there, there must be a rigorous devotion to the truth of God's word. Because it's only in the word that the gospel of Jesus Christ and in his glorious, magnificent grace is revealed. So if to, to become more grounded in gospel truth is what gives stability to the believer. This is what Paul is after. This is what he's always after, typically. And then in 1 Timothy 6, so we see that warning in chapter 4. When you get to chapter 6, verse 20, notice what he says. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. They've swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. So we move from uh, the church, her, her purpose and passion... We move from fuel for that passion and purpose, that's our theology, to our focus this morning, which is the church who who is and serves as the guardian of the deposit. Guardian of the deposit. First Timothy opened with an exhortation. His first letter to Timothy, he opens up saying, Beware of different doctrine. Now, if you've ever done a study of First, text, first and Second Timothy and Titus, which are the pastoral epistles, and have taken count of how many times doctrine or teaching is referenced, I'd encourage you to do that. In First Timothy 1, verse 3, he says, Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And, he goes on to say, avoid unprofitable speculations. So that's how he opens the letter. Paul's letter closes with a final charge to Timothy to guard the deposit and avoid irreverent babble. Okay, irreverent babble? You know what that is? It's false teaching. Avoid it. Irreverent babble. So while Timothy here is the chief addressee of the letter, right? He, Paul is writing Timothy... Uh, these commands throughout First and Second Timothy are really given to the, to the entire church. If you notice in the very last verse of First Timothy, grace be with you. Um, the you is in the plural. So that indicates that the entire church has the responsibility to, to attend only to reverent teaching and forsake irreverent babble. Avoid it. That's our responsibility, to avoid it. Now, in First and Second Timothy, in almost every paragraph, there's some reference to false teaching, and therefore many references to sound doctrine and sound teaching over and over again. So if you ever get tired of of preachers preaching about doctrine, (laughs) the problem's with you. (laughs) 
Because Timothy, he does it. The Apostle Paul does it. In Paul's second letter to Timothy. Okay, let's move to the second letter. 2 Timothy 2. Pastor Timothy, you then, my child, writes Paul, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, 2 Timothy, develops what he writes in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And this is very familiar language. We just read it in the first letter. Notice what he says. 2 Timothy 1, verse 13. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard it. So the good deposit, what's that? Good deposit is the apost- in, in the original context here is the apostolic tradition. Okay? And the good news about Jesus Christ is the apostolic tradition. So that apostolic tradition, that is the deposit. And the apostolic tradition, that deposit, at this point in time, is becoming Scripture. These letters are becoming Scripture. The Holy Spirit anointed Word of God. Holy Spirit inspired Word of Almighty God. So that's the deposit. It's the word of God. So Paul's reference to deposit refers then to the unchanging word of God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the idea behind deposit um, in the first century um, is is the uh, solemn obligation of having been entrusted to another person's possessions. And the responsibility then is to hold on to that possession. The responsibility is to keep that possession safe until the owner returns. And then you return it in the same condition you received it. That's the idea. That's the solemn obligation. So in light of the Christian faith, that means for us that that, that this deposit of truth The apostolic tradition, which is the living word of God, is on loan to the church. And she had better return it just as he gave it when he comes back again. So this is the possession given to us, and it needs to be returned on the last day unchanged. This is the solemn warning. This is what he tells him in 1 Timothy. This is what he reiterates in his second letter. So this informs us we're never permitted to water down his word. Amen? Never permitted to water it down. If If it's offensive, it's offensive. Don't change it. Because the gospel offends. Instead, we are to guard it. We're to guard it with our very lives. Um, every believer, most specifically leaders in the church, has this sacred trust, and that is to guard the revelation of God. That's what Scripture is. It is the special revelation 
of Almighty God. So Paul says, guard that good deposit. And he says here in 2 Timothy, okay, this is how you're going to do it. This is the practical application. In order to guard this deposit, you pass it on, chapter 2, verse 2, to faithful men. Faithful men who will also do what? They'll pass it on to others. 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So be strengthened is a command. It means to be, be strong. By what? By the grace given to us in Christ Jesus. He's saying, look, God is the one who will enable you, Timothy, to obey the command. With all the pressure this brother's under, could he do this in his own strength? No. Could you do it in your own strength? No way. There is no way. He he had opposition from the inside, opposition from the outside. He says, but God's grace, lean in, engage. His grace will enable you to be strong. So notice, this isn't just a sit back, let go, and let God type of mentality, is it? You know, some people sit around, and I've met them, they hold on to a particular end-time view, and when things get tough, they basically have this mentality. Oh, man, no worries, I'm going to be raptured out of here anyway. Don't think like that. Paul never sat back. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, this is what he says. But, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me, Notice, was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. All that Paul would suffer, I believe God dispensed in an enormous amount of grace for that man to endure what he endured. Remember when he was converted, Ananias is praying, you know, I want you to go to this house, the house of the street called Straight. There's a man there praying, for I must show him the things that he must suffer for my name's sake. And that was Saul of Tarsus, who is here now, the Apostle Paul. He's strengthened by the grace of God, and he says, Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So being strengthened by the grace of God ought to cause us to be on our toes. Not waiting for some secret rapture. Okay? If you have any idea, if you want to know about the rapture and what it is and what it isn't, you can go back and listen online to um, our series in Revelation. And the Bible doesn't speak about any secret taking away. When, when we're raptured up, it's a really loud event and it coincides with the second coming. In case you're wondering. So grace motivates all, or it should, who have been made alive in Christ. Because those who haven't been granted such power remain, Ephesians 2, flatline, dead. Right? God bless you. Dead. We've been made alive. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, Four good works, which God prepared beforehand 
that we should walk in them. Grace dispensed enables us to stand. He provides us the strength we need, and that's what Paul is reminding Timothy of. My child, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So in 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, he's saying, pass this on. Okay, this, this good deposit, guard it. Pass it on to those who also will guard it. Teach it and pass it on to future generations. In trust, he says, to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So to do that, you first have to embrace it. Amen? Timothy, embrace the truth, believe the truth, and then entrust it, pass it on. You will fumble the baton. And that's the picture here. This is not a marathon he's talking about. This is, this is, a, this is a relay race. And if you drop the baton, that's when you get into trouble. So make sure you're paying attention as you hand it off and to whom you're handing it over to. Don't fumble. So believe it, embrace it, pass it on. That's the idea. So he's saying, look, there's a body of teaching that you've received. It's been implanted as regards the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Carry on what I've taught you. That's why, look, what's he talking about? Discipleship. This is discipleship. You know what a genuinely healthy Christian congregation wants and needs? And again, I I, I stress healthy. You know what they want? They want leadership. They they want men behind the pulpit who who are biblically masculine. That's what they want. And, And again, a healthy church, what they want and what they need is biblically masculine men who, who will stand behind the sacred desk and, and, and declare without apology, thus says the Lord. That's what Paul did. That's what he's telling Timothy to do, to, to guard it. It's been entrusted to you. And at the same time, make disciples of other biblically-minded men who will do the very same thing. Discipleship. So the caution given to the church, then and now, is this. Spiritual laziness breeds false teaching. Spiritual lethargy spawns false teaching. And this is why Paul tells Timothy and Titus also to be examples, to be models in diligence. Be models in diligence. Titus 2, verse 8. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity. 1 Timothy 1.16. I receive mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. 1 Timothy 4. To Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, 
in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And until I come, verse 13, until I come, devote yourself, notice, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Where's that written at this church? Right above the doors. It's etched in that. I don't think it's true etching, but it, it looks like it's etched in the glass, but that's a thing that's made to appear as though it's etched in glass. But it means no less whether it's etched in the glass <laughs> or not. But it looks good. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. In 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 15, do your best, notice, to present yourself to God as one approved. Notice, a worker. Anything wrong with working in the Christian faith? Everything's by grace. Of course it is. So work because of grace. Present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid, here it is again, irreverent babble. False teaching. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Here's the effect. Teach it, preach it, work hard, rightly divide it, Avoid false teachings. Avoid false doctrine. It will spread like gangrene. I had a neighbor I grew up next to, Mrs. Weber. She got gangrene in her big toe and it spread and they had to chop off two-thirds of her leg. It spreads like that. She was a nurse, retired. She ignored some type of infection she had. And gangrene took over. Um, Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from what? Iniquity. This, this, This false teaching in the first century that the resurrection already took place is taught today as well. Some teach that today... To this very day, they're called preterists, hyper-preterists. They teach that the resurrection took place, a spiritual resurrection took place in 70 AD. Therefore, there will be no literal physical resurrection. It was all spiritual resurrection. So it was taught then, and it's taught to this day. So if we think through it biblically, with a biblical theology that's sound, if there's no physical resurrection then the the final curses of Adam aren't removed. Because in the garden, it says, if you do this, you'll live. If you do that, you will die. And he died. Jesus, the second Adam comes, lived, died, was resurrected physically, literally, and Christ's resurrection is the beginning of the end. And we too who are in Christ will be raised to life. Everyone who remains in Adam will be raised with a body fit for eternal death. Suffering. So there's a false teaching that was going on right there 
and that's still taught today. We had two of those guys come through this church for a while. We wouldn't let them become members. We basically said, if you can keep, keep your mouth shut and sit under the teaching, you'll be okay. But if we find you in the corner with anybody trying to press your agenda, you're out of here. And it just, they couldn't handle the itch. So they're out. 1 Timothy 6, verse 9. Actually, let me back up. Let me back up. Back to 2 Timothy. After he says, you know, pass this on, the faithful men, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, provide for us a, a response that is a mindset to be adopted so as to overcome lethargy. See, if, if, you're, if you're lethargic, especially in leadership, if you're lazy, people will come in with false doctrine. You're not on your toes. So before you know it, it's spreading throughout the congregation like gain green. So you've got to catch it and you have to nip it. This is, these are the warnings we see. So here, he provides a response Okay, again, this, this mindset ought to be adopted so as to overcome lethargy that will inevitably breed false doctrine. 2 Timothy 2, verse 3. Share in suffering as what kind of a soldier? As a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuit since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So, to guard the treasure, you must guard it with a new kind of loyalty. That's the idea. You must be loyal as a soldier. And in the first century, soldiers would take an oath of loyalty. And what they would do is is that they would depart from civilian life, no longer ensnared by everyday affairs. What would be an everyday affair? Working in trade. Nothing wrong with working in trade. But here, trade business, nothing wrong with it in and of itself, nothing at all. But the idea here is that Christ's army, that is, his kingdom people, his kingdom soldiers, must must guard against the world's claims, because that's all you're going to hear, are claims of self-interest. So he's removed himself so he can focus in and be loyal to the one who enlisted him. That's the idea. There's nothing wrong with riches, right? Nothing wrong with being rich. But the problem for men who are in the ministry, whose desires and loyalty uh, shift from from God, the one who enlisted them, to uh, making much in trade, if you will, it becomes a snare. So he said this, 1 Timothy 6, verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You know, some guys' ministries are ruined or at the least stained because of this kind of 
affection. Some guys leave the ministry altogether because of greater interests, greater concerns. Their, their love for money trumps everything else. And it's subtle. And that was the warning. Riches are in no way bad. Did I make that clear? For all you rich people? Riches are in no way bad until you, what? Until you idolize them. Flee, he says, from these things. Right? We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. So he's talking about a kind of loyalty. In, in order to, to overcome lethargy, laziness, and, and miss any false teaching that might enter into the church, maintain the locus of your focus here. Be loyal to the one who enlisted you. That's what he's saying. 2 Timothy 2.4, the aim, the goal, notice, what's the aim? To please the one who enlisted you. Most specifically in guarding the scripture, we guard it in life, we guard it in family, uh, we guard the church life by guarding the deposit. Pass it on faithfully to faithful men who will also guard it, and this is one of the ways that pleases the Lord. Suffer loyally, verse 3, as a good soldier. And sometimes that means suffering from those who disagree with our teaching or preaching. Any faithful preacher, you know, because as you preach, you're called to engage people on a very personal level. I mean, this, this is life. This is the powerful word of God. It cuts, it divides, it separates, it reveals what we are on the inside. As, as faithful ministers proclaim the whole counsel of God unapologetically, they easily become the target or targets of gossip and false accusation. That's what happened to Paul. That's what happened to all these faithful men, to our Lord Jesus. It will happen. You don't go looking for enemies, right? But if you preach the truth, you will have enemies. So Timothy, who was young, he says, don't be intimidated. Remember that? These guys are coming trying to rattle your cage, to put it in the vernacular. They're trying to rattle your cage. Don't be upset. Stay the course. Be loyal. So to overcome any type of lethargy or laziness, you know, that, that, you know that the, the pressure may cause you to take a step back and rest easy, remember you've been enlisted. And your aim is to please the one who's enlisted you. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, what did Paul say? Actually, verse 8, 2 Timothy 1, 8. Join with me, he's writing Timothy, join with me in suffering for the gospel. And then in verse 15, he says, all those in Asia, what'd they do? They deserted me. They turned away from me. All in Asia turned away. So that's difficult kind of suffering, amen? Where half your team leaves, or your whole team, your entire team, they leave, they depart. 
So this kind of suffering, he goes on, he goes on. He says, to overcome any type of temptation towards lethargy where you'll miss false teaching, it will cause you not to guard the deposit. Be like a good soldier and suffer loyally. And then to, to such suffering um, is analogous to the suffering of an athlete. So that's, that's his next metaphor. Notice 2 Timothy 2.5. An athlete is not crowned, notice, unless he competes according to the, say that word, rules. A lot of Christians don't like that word. Get over it. This isn't to earn anything. He says, compete loyally and lawfully. That is, if you're going to be an athlete, you compete according to the rules. And in this day, these Olympian athletes, they would take an oath before this statue. Um, who's the Olympian? The statue, this, uh, yeah, the, the Greek god, who is it? Anyway, you would take an oath before this thing, before you would enter into to the, into the uh, Olympics. You would, you would take a, an oath that included um, dietary laws, that included training, and, of course, uh, rules of the event itself. A lot of Christians don't like this kind of language because it sounds so legalistic. It's ridiculous. Only those who compete according to the rules receive the crown. And here, the context for crown, you know what it is? Salvation. So, putting this together, he says, grace, the unmerited favor of God, motivates you to run and pass the baton faithfully to faithful men who will run on and also pass it on faithfully. That's what it is to guard the deposit. That's the church's responsibility. That's how you do it, he said. This is how you, 1 Timothy 6, fight the good fight. And then 2 Timothy 2, verse 6, this is our last one. Who gets the share in the crops? The, the farmer that's sleeping, that's lazy? No. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Verse 7, Timothy, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. There again is grace. There again is grace. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Because those who, who proclaim Christ, we're, we're going to identify with the words either of God or the world. Therefore, he says, guard it. Avoid irreverent babble, false teaching. And avoid such people. So there we have it. Amen? The church, guardian of the deposit. Questions, comments? Yes, sir.
Yeah, the apostolic tradition being that uh, where we read in Ephesians about uh, what the foundation was built upon the apostles and the prophets, and then it's passed on to evangelists and teachers, that is, slash, kai, that is, preachers. The apostolic tradition is the, uh, is the, the unveiling of everything, the mystery revealed in Christ, as Paul writes about. So the mystery of the Old Covenant is revealed in Christ. This is given to the apostles. They're the foundation. They, they pass it on, and as they're passing it on, as they're receiving further revelation from God through the finished work of Jesus Christ, they're writing these things down, and it's becoming Scripture. That's, that's basically what I mean by that. Yeah. Once you go to the apostolic fathers. Yeah. And they, that, so the tradition is certain rituals and, and liturgies and those kinds of things mm-hmm. that the church established rather than the scripture. Yes, I see, I see where you're going. Yeah, tradition isn't merely um, rites and rituals. I mean, after all, um, Israel had all kinds of rituals and rites, amen? And what did Jesus rebuke them for? Basically, adhering merely to that and, mi- and missing what's behind all of that, who was standing before their very eyes. So it's not merely about liturgies or rites or rituals. It's about the Word of God. So uh, the, the tradition is not just simply um, what, what we do when we gather together or how we do it, per se, but it is the very Word of God and our submission to it, which is submission to Him who is the... The word does that does that make sense? Yeah. And, and, and that, that some traditions of the church historically were incorrect. Right. But the early church they made some mistakes initially in the first century and right. so forth and had doctrines that were not biblical. And to go back and hold on to those doctrines because they're traditional right. is a terrible mistake. It is. And uh during the, the Reformation, what kind of Reformation was it? It was a magisterial Reformation. And in, in, in part of the era, I believe, where the church didn't reform far enough away from Roman Catholicism that was under the state, was infant baptism. And out of all the pressure that the Reformers were confronted with and dealing with, I, I think that that tradition, which I believe is a man-made tradition... Um, was probably one of the areas that was... Uh, uh, you, you were heavily assaulted for it, but it was probably in their minds uh, one of the lesser evils. Therefore, we'll just adhere to this, and you know, we'll, we'll declare sola scriptura. But then, if you could declare sola scriptura, where do you find this, uh, this infant baptism thing other than from Catholicism itself? So that was one of the things. And we still have dear Protestant brothers who do it to this day. And they believe that it's a a, a covenant sign that is basically uh, the result of transfer theology, we would call it, in that uh, under the old covenant, um, you circumcised all male infants. And then under the new covenant, you, you baptized those infants as a covenant sign of belonging to the covenant community. So that's one example of that. There's many more, but... 
That's what Ray's talking about. It's a good, great point.